I had been asked to speak to uh, my classmates. And we had all gathered together after so many years, and I was really moved deeply by what was taking place. The singing was powerful. And then came the testimonies, and they were gripping. These people were telling stories, both the highs and the lows of life. And how they were trying to seek God and to live for God in the midst of these difficulties. And then I got up to speak and to provide the exposition from God's Word. Something took place afterwards that is etched in my memory. Two men approached me who were ministering overseas. And they said, Gary, I just want to let you know what we're doing. And so they began to tell me of how they're involved in the construction of a school. Good for the mind, I say. But then they add, and the building of a hospital. Good for the body. And furthermore, we are constructing a church facility. Good for the soul. They're thinking holistically, mind, body, soul. But I see the tears are welling up inside their eyes as one of them goes on to say, but there is such pushback of what we're experiencing. God has so much to offer through what we're doing, but it seems as though we're being hindered each and every step along the way. Got any thoughts? And I ask, Have you considered Nehemiah 4? Because in Nehemiah 4, what God does is that he raises up an army of spiritual leaders to rebuild these walls, but does so in the face of opposition. And what you and I need to do is to be able to explore how what God does in the face of opposition, such as in the case when Jesus faced such opposition, going to the cross, and he took that opposition and turned it into an opportunity for you and for me to experience grace. What I want to do with you now as we continue our understanding and our study of spiritual leadership is to draw out a number of guidelines that I think impact the home directly, if your parent impacts singleness directly, if you're trying to find ways to relate this to the marketplace, to your neighborhoods, whatever, to the work itself that you and I are involved in, and not only nationally but globally, there's something here. Five guidelines, if you will, and the way in which spiritual leaders should operate in the face of opposition. And the first comes out of verses 1 through verse 3, that as opposition to God's work intensifies, which is what's happening globally, spiritual leaders should, number one, analyze the opposition discerningly, evaluate them. Instead of just reacting emotionally, try to understand and why is it that they are opposing what it is I'm attempting to do for God's glory. And they're good. 
Now in verse 1, we've already been introduced to this man before, and Nehemiah's been anticipating this, but here it comes. So when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry, and you can already feel the intensifying emotional state, and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. Some things never change. Now, what Nehemiah has got to be able to do at this point is he sees this growing coalition of people opposed to him is to begin to ask questions such as, who are the stakeholders? Where is Sanballat coming from? And what are the attitudes of those people in the area in which he leads? Sanballat oversees, he's governor of the people of Samaria. The Samaritans, you and I know, would be people that the disciples themselves would want to avoid. Tremendous tensions between these people and and the Jews. You want to know something about their relationships with others around them. Why such a coalition would begin to develop know their values, know their beliefs, know their history, and understand their fears because they are afraid that Jerusalem will become strong and therefore as Jerusalem becomes stronger because of the hands of the Jews, Samaria will be weaker economically and in every other sense of the word. There's always a tension between somebody becoming stronger and someone else becoming weaker and displays itself emotionally even on the internet. Well, now, Nehemiah's got to diagnose this. He's got to evaluate this. And so he begins to hear the ridicule. Bear in mind, Jesus was ridiculed. Jesus was jeered as he was positioning himself to go to that cross. Notice where this takes place in verse 2. Sanballat says this, not only in the presence of his brothers in verse 2, But notice, furthermore, and the army of Samaria, have they already equipped themselves for attack? Is this a display of force that demonstrates the realm of weakness? Is Samaria threatened by Jerusalem? Why why the anger? Why the rage? And so now he gathers together not merely his brothers, but also a display of force, the army of Samaria, and poses a series of rhetorical questions. What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Question. Will they sacrifice? Question mark. Will they finish it up in a day? Question. Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? And you can almost hear the back and forth and the laughter of the soldiers as their governor, Sanballat, is is taunting the Jews and, and engaging the emotional state of the opposition. But that's not enough. There's another leader, another governor of another setting, Tobiah the Ammonite in verse 3. He's beside him as well. So already forces are joining together in opposition to the advancement of the cause of God. Listen to what he's got to say here in 3. Yes, what they're building 
If a fox goes up on it, he'll break down their stone wall. Funny guy. Jimmy Fallon would roll his eyes back at that one. So what we got here now is a situation where they're beginning to mock. They're beginning to intensify the opposition toward the Jews. And what Nehemiah and the Jews who are rebuilding are going to have to do is to understand, analyze the reasons behind the opposition. The start of World War I. British Army Ministry dispatched a coded message to officials in a British colony in a remote area of Africa. The message said, War declared, arrest all enemy aliens in your district. They got a prompt reply. Have arrested ten Germans, six Dutch, four French, two Italians, three Austrians, and an American. Please advise immediately who we're at war with. Now, the wise spiritual leader understands something about the nature of the opposition. Why do you think you're being opposed? And what is it in the history of the stakeholders' hearts and mind and experience that will cause them to oppose this? What fears do they have? A man approaches me and he says, Gary, we're dealing with cyberbullying. I want to protect the kids. Any thoughts? Any ideas? And I ask, have you considered the principles from Nehemiah 4? I think what you're going to have to do is to equip the children when it comes to their involvement on the Internet, that when there is such pushback and antagonism and opposition, They're able to understand the reasons behind it, the spiritual dynamics involved in it, the vested interests that are entangled within this. Equip them to be able to evaluate before we move forward. And so should we. That's a sign of spiritual leadership. As opposition to God's work intensifies, spiritual leaders should, number one, analyze the opposition discerningly. You get that from one through three. But second of all, spiritual leaders should seek the Lord prayerfully. And you find that now in verses 4, 5, and 6, which appear on the screen. Here, O our God, this is now Nehemiah, and he's praying. Now, the natural tendency is that when somebody begins to get in your face is to respond verbally. What I want you to be able to spot here at this point is that Nehemiah, instead of responding verbally to those taunting him, instead responds prayerfully to the God who's sovereign over him. Now, what we have to do in the face of opposition is to equip ourselves to learn verbal restraint. Seeking God in prayer, while at the same time restraining our lips from exacerbating circumstances. The heart of the righteous, the writer states in Proverbs, the heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. Are you doing that on social media? But the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. Proverbs 15, 28. 
He who restrains his words has knowledge. And he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Proverbs 15, verse 27. And so now, hear, O our God, we despise, turn back their taunt on their own heads, give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Notice he doesn't say that to them, he prays that to God. Now, what he is doing at this point is praying what the Bible would describe as an imprecatory prayer. And you'll find these on occasion in the Psalms. It's a harsh prayer. He says in verse 5, Do not cover their guilt, and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. But you notice, he doesn't say they provoked us or me. So instead of responding verbally, because his anger is aroused, instead he is proactively going to God prayerfully because he knows that God's anger is aroused and we've got to be able to equip people to understand this. That when God's cause is advanced, opponents to God's will will reveal their opposition in the ways in which their anger is demonstrated verbally and physically. Vengeance is mine, God said to the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35, and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly, for the Lord will vindicate his people. So vengeance is God's not ours. And vindication comes from God to us. So notice the vengeance vindication principle brought together in Deuteronomy 32, 35, 36, which is exactly what Nehemiah is doing at this point. He recognizes that vengeance is not his, Nehemiah's, it's God's. And likewise, when we are opposed, vengeance is not ours. Understand the vested interest of spiritual opposition. It does not lead then to a spirit of vindictiveness, but rather allows for God to be involved in vindication of his people. Because ultimately what's at stake here is the glory of God, not our glory. Just as in David's situation, the Psalms, when he would pray this way, David's enemies ceased then to be his private enemies, instead became the enemies of God. And so if you're finding somebody in your own personal experience right now that for whatever reason and has something to do with your walk with Jesus Christ, is creating incredible challenge and difficulty. Cultivate a prayerful spirit in your private setting so you're able to handle these issues in the public setting. And parents need to equip their children to be able to do this. And employers need to be able to equip their employees to do this. Single people need to so discipline their souls so that when they step out publicly, they've already so strengthened themselves privately. The biographer of Samuel Chadwick, wrote, Chadwick was essentially a man of prayer. 
every morning he would, be, he would stir shortly before five, and he kept a little room which was his private sanctuary for his quiet hour before breakfast. He was mighty in public prayer because he was constant in private devotion. Let me say that again. It was so good. He was mighty in public prayer because he was constant in private devotion. When he prayed, he expected God to do something. Is that you? I wish I had prayed more, he wrote toward the end of his life even if I had worked less, and from the bottom of my heart, I wish I had prayed better. From the lips of a man who obviously knows something about prayer. Nehemiah knows something about prayer, and so instead of responding verbally to the attacks, he responds prayerfully to the sovereign God who's offended by these attacks. And he's put everything now in proper perspective. The wise parent puts things in proper perspective for family members. The wife, the husband, after a hard day of work, they interact with one another and try to put things in proper perspective for one another. When we gather together in the adult Bible fellowships, you've got a great one happening in the third hour. You put things in proper perspective. Because you have gone to God first. So you analyze the opposition discerningly. We seek the Lord prayerfully, taking into account we are praying the promises of God back to God. Exactly what Nehemiah is doing here. But now thirdly, spiritual leaders should equip the workers effectively. So beginning now in verse 7, after we are told we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together, half its height for the people had mind to work, notice that the opposition begins to intensify when we've reached the halfway point. Be alert to those that you're ministering to that are at the halfway point. You know what that's like if you're running a marathon. Some are half-full, others are half-empty types when it comes to the challenges of life, looking backward and then looking forward. The wise spiritual leader understands all these dynamics and knows what's necessary then after analyzing the opposition discerningly and seeking the Lord prayerfully. So now, if there needs to be some added equipping of the workers effectively, now's the time, because certainly the opposition is noting it. And Sanballat and Tobiah, in verse 7, and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed. Notice then, once again, the emotional state. Keep analyzing the emotional state of those that stand in opposition. They are described here as very angry. Keep asking, why? What's in it for them? What isn't in it for them? Why are they so vested emotionally in what's taking place here? Now, if you had your Bible atlas in front of you, you and I would realize right away Jerusalem is surrounded. North, south, east, west. 
this people group that has gathered together in verse 7 have come from all directions, and they are now one coalition. But what is interesting, if we were to read a history book, is that these people groups described here in verse 7 were previously opposed to one another to varying degrees. In competition with one another economically and in every other sense of the word. But feeling threatened by Jerusalem, they now unite in a common cause. In Luke chapter 23, verse 12, the physician writes, And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Now, the next time you are giving God and counsel to the Secretary of State. And he's trying to figure out how to handle the opposition, you see, to the Jewish population base. Remind him of the fact that both the Sunnis and the Shiites historically have been in opposition against one another. But when it comes to the matter of the Jews... They are willing to coalesce and put aside their differences because they see a greater enemy at hand, the advancement of the Jewish population. Involvement, foothold in the Middle East. Try to understand then, even in cyberbullying and so on, if your family's been affected this way. Coalitions people that otherwise would have been in disagreement with one another, but find common ground to be able to pick on somebody else. Now, what's happening is that this coalition that had previously been opposed to one another have come together because they are feeling threatened now by the very epicenter of our globe, Jerusalem. Some things never change. And all of this is still a foretaste to the end times. And so north, south, east, west, Jerusalem is slowly but surely being encircled. In verse 8, they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and cause confusion in it. What do you do at this point? You're a spiritual leader. You're in the midst of the people. How do you equip them? Notice carefully verse 9. And we... Not just I. And we prayed to our God, that's piety, and set a God as protection against them day and night. That's practicality. And those two are not to be separated from one another. And so what Nehemiah is doing at this point is saying, I'm going to do what's necessary, practically speaking, to be able to address this issue that I'm facing. And he does so in a very wise way. How does he face impossible situations? Was one of John Mott's tests for people of leadership caliber. It was his practice to encourage future leaders to deal with impossible tasks Now, rather than with easy ones. Because that would draw out their powers, teach them their dependence on others, and cause them to seek out God. 
I long since ceased to occupy myself with minor things that can be done by others, he said. A true leader is at his best in the baffling circumstances of life. And a wise parent understands that's necessary to be able to equip the next generation as to how to handle difficulties rather than always resolving them themselves. Well, now, you'd expect better in verse 10 than what you get. You'd expect Judah to take the lead. But instead, Judah said, the strength of those who bear the burdens failing. Now, people normally would turn to Judah for strength. But here's Judas saying it. So when that happens, you're going to see the movement towards demoralization from within. How does a spiritual leader handle that? There's too much rubble by ourselves. We will not be able to rebuild the wall. The wise spiritual leader understands the point of spiritual, physical exhaustion. Understand that spouse... Understand that friend of yours, single, who's starting to feel overwhelmed. How are you going to minister to them? In verse 11, our enemies said they will not know or see till we come among them, kill them, stop the work, which is the ultimate objective. Furthermore, in 12, at that time, the Jews who lived near them, came from all directions, said to us ten times, you must return to us. The repetition is going to start wearing them down. You must return to us. You must return to us. In other words, people on the outskirts are feeling vulnerable. What does a spiritual leader do? In verse 13, so in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open spaces, in other words, Nehemiah has figured out where are we vulnerable. A single person figures out where he or she's vulnerable. Parent understands where he or she or the children are vulnerable. What are you going to do about it? So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I station the people. But do you see the wisdom here? I stationed the people by their clans. In other words, they will fight more vigorously if they see their, their family right by their side. They're not going to let their family become vulnerable. With their swords, their spears, their bows. And I looked and I rose and said to the nobles, to the officials, to the rest of the people. And here now he continues to bring God back into the present of the thinking in the midst of the challenge. Remember the Lord. Verse 14, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight. Fight for your brothers, your sons. Your daughters, you see, your wives, your homes. I love what Winston Churchill once said in the midst of the World War II matter. God did not raise me up to lead the liquidation of an empire. I promised blood, sweat, toil, and tears. But we will never give in. He must have been reading Nehemiah. Nehemiah continuously uses the word we. G. Oswald Saunders goes on to say, I, it would not be exaggeration to affirm that never in human history have leaders been confronted with such a concentration of unresolved crises and impossible situations as in our day. And consequently, if they're to survive, 
they must be able to thrive on difficulties and turn them into routine. And so now we equip those within our circle of relationships to challenge them, stir them, resource them, to take the difficulties of life and turn them into the routines of life as they make their way forward. Remember the Lord, who's great and awesome. Fight. Fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. And so now what Nehemiah has done is that he's determined not only the vested interests of those that are opposed to them, but the vested interests of those being opposed, the Jewish people. He's got them connected to the people that matter most, and so should you and so should I. Stay connected. Leads then to this fourth guideline, that is opposition to God's work intensifies spiritual leaders should adjust the methods wisely. You've analyzed the opposition to sinningly, one through three. You sought the Lord prayerfully, four through six. You've equipped the workers, your family, your friends, this church, effectively, seven through 14. But now you adjust the methods wisely. And when you've got to make adjustments, you make adjustments. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall. Don't you love that? Each to his work. But now notice the adjustment that this wise leader, Nehemiah, has got to make. It might slow progress. But he's got to provide a layer of security for them to be able to be fully equipped to move forward strategically. In verse 16, from that day on, half of my servants worked on construction. Half held the spears, shields, bows, coats of mail, and the leaders stood within the house, of, whole house of Judah, who were building on the wall. And those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. That's not necessarily high efficiency, isn't it? But at the same time, sometimes you have to put efficiency aside for the sake of security. Parents have to understand that. Now you're going to tire down because this means it's going to go a little slower this work. But you keep the vision before you of what it is that God has called you to do. Douglas Thornton, who had ministered in Egypt. Mr. Bayless, his senior missionary, said, Thornton, you're different to anyone else I know. You're always looking at the end of things, while most people, self-included, find it better simply to do the next thing. I love Thornton's answer. I find that the constant inspiration gained by looking at the goal is the chief thing that helps me to persevere. Now, if you're among people, family members, maybe a spouse, a child, maybe it's a friend, single friend, and they're wearing down. Hear that again. I find that the constant inspiration gained by looking at the goal is the chief thing that helps me to persevere. 
the biographer goes on to say, an ideal, a vision from God was absolutely necessary to him. He could not work without, and as this explained the largeness of his views and the magnitude of his schemes, work was done for God's glory. And so you ponder that. In verse 19, I said to the nobles, to the officials, and to the rest of the people, the work's great, widely spread, we're separated on the wall, far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there, they need a rallying place, as do you and as do I. Thus, we've got life groups. Thus, we've got church fellowship. Thus, you've got an adult Bible fellowship. The thuses. Rallying points that bring us back together. What Nehemiah has done, according to this verse 18, is to position a trumpet player beside him who would sound the trumpet when the need arose for people to come together. In other words, Nehemiah understands effective communication. What's necessary to keep the people together? Fear not, he cried, when there was every reason to fear. Stand still, said Pharaoh, and when Pharaoh was rapidly overtaking them, see the salvation of the Lord, which seemed a very long distance from them, Exodus 14, 11 through 13. Let God fight this battle. In the evangelization of China, Hudson Taylor often found himself face to face with impossible type situations. And as a result of his experience, he used to say that there were three phases, three phases in most great tasks that have to be undertaken for God. Phase one, impossible. Phase two, difficult. Phase three, done. Our God will fight for us. Verse 20. And so now what he has done is that he's adjusted the methods. Now you're going to have to have a sword in hand as well as the working tool to build that wall. Some might be prone to say, but we've never done this way before. But the wise spiritual leader understands the difference between the time-bound, the timeless, and the timely. And disregards the time-bound and pulls together the timeless with the timely. David did that. Saul wanted to equip David to fight a battle in Saul's armor. What David chose to do was to resist that notion, even though that's the way you did battles with the Philistines. It's always done that way before. Instead, he headed off into the wilderness, got five smooth stones, skilled with his slingshot, because you don't take Goliath on one on one. Instead, David is going to fight Goliath the way that God has created David to fight Goliath, not the way in which God has created Saul to fight Goliath. Know yourself, and know how God created you. And know in this particular case, David was skilled at distant warfare rather than up-close physical battle. Don't try to fight God's battles wearing Saul's armor. 
doesn't work. Vary your methods. Methods are many and principles are few. Methods always change, but principles never do. Finally, out of verses 21 through 23, as opposition to God's word intensifies, spiritual leaders should advance the work courageously. Advance the work courageously. That's your fifth guideline. I love the word we, so we labored at the work. Half of them held the spears, even though it slows us down from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a God for us by night, may labor by day. Look what comes next. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the God who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. They're absolutely committed, you see, no matter how weary they are, to do it God's way, God's time, God's glory. Are you? And this morning, if you're weary, what God does is that he equips you with his word to do the work that God has called you to do for his glory. Let's stand together. And so, Father, now in this fourth chapter of Nehemiah, as we continue to draw out all the various insights and spiritual leadership for this and coming generations of leaders in this church, in this region, nation, and beyond. I'm asking now, Lord, that you allow us to be able to see what it is here that equips us to be more effective in ministering. Ministering in the home. Ministering in the church. Ministering through the church. Ministering in this region and beyond. There's a work to be done. We're your workers. Use us, Father, for your glory. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.